Let me get this set up here. Hope it's not very big. Don't worry, I've got all my verses written down. I need to uh, dive into the physical Bible. We will. Um, but, yes. Alright, uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, and uh, we thank you once again for this time that we have together. And um, just thank you for this retreat and all the beauty that we're surrounded around. And... Um, I just pray that you would speak through me and that you would speak to each and every one of us and that um, through this message we'll, we'll come away with a better understanding of who you are, who we are, and um, who you uh, want us to be. And I pray um, just that you'll be with us and pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. I want to preface this message uh, by saying a few things. Uh, we're going to be talking about sin. And we're, this, the title of this message is The Sickness Unto Death. Um, it's largely concerned with our state before Christ saves us. And so my hope is that if Christ hasn't saved you, you'll come to that realization today. If Christ has saved you, you'll come away with a better understanding and a better appreciation of what he saved you from. And finally, I hope that we all have a better picture of sin in our life and what needs to be done about it. So if there's things that we need to do, if there's actions we need to take, um, that we won't just excuse sin in our life, that we'll actually take steps to fight the sin and get past it. Um, I love the songs that we've sung, and I love the fact that if Christ has saved us, we are adopted, we are a child of God, we, God has thrown our sin away, but we still will struggle with sin. And so I want us to understand what sin is, where it came from, to have a biblical view of its effects on the world, and what it means before us and before a holy God. Um, and through this all, I want you to keep this quote by Tim Keller in mind, because I don't want us to veer into um, one of the two errors we can fall into, either that, man, I'm just so bad, God's not going to save me, and I'm worthless, and I'm scum, and God doesn't care about me, and all my sins are just burying me. Um, but we also want to realize that, yes, our sin is awful, and God can save us, and he loves us, despite our sin, and he saves us from our sin. So Tim Keller says that we are more sinful and flawed that we, than we ever dared believe, yet more and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. Uh, I love that quote, and I think it sums this up very well. So uh, the first question is, what is sin? Can any of you guys give me a definition of sin? Like... This can be an easy Sunday school answer. Okay. It breaks God's law. It breaks God's law. Okay. Aiden. Anything we say, think, or do that displeases God. Okay. Good. That's kind of the one I had in mind. Kind of a working base. Parker. Anything that doesn't glorify God. Anyone else? These are all great answers. All right. 
Um, those are all great answers. They're all true answers. And I think it, it's a very good foundation to work from. Um, one, of the, in thinking through this and thinking and defining sin, I said it's direct opposition to God's holiness. It is the antithesis to God's holiness. So what we talked about last night, God's holiness, our sinfulness is complete opposite of that. R.C. Sproul said that there's two things that every human being absolutely must understand. One is the holiness of God, and the other is the sinfulness of man. And if we understand who God is and catch a glimpse of his majesty, purity, holiness, then we are instantly aware of our own corruption. And when that happens, we fly to grace because we realize that there is no way that we could stand before God apart from his grace. And so understanding God's holiness, understanding man's sinfulness, they're both important. We need to have clear pictures of that. And the best way we, can, uh, we have that is to go to the Bible. Um, and we're going to be surveying a whole lot of uh, the Bible. Sin. This is basically like a very brief run through the Old Testament. And I'll, we're going to be all over the place. But uh, some quotes about sin that I thought were... Um, that stood out to me as I researched this message was Cornelius Plantinga Jr. said that sin is disruption of created harmony and then resistance to divine restoration of that harmony. Above all, sin disrupts and resists the vital human relation to God. So God created things and he created them in harmony and then sin entered and it created disharmony. Anything that's disharmonic disharmonious uh, and resist the relationship with God, that could be sin. Uh, one of you said that is breaking God's rules. And um, D.A. Carson said, that's what a lot of people think that sin is. And it's a very good working definition. Um, but we can't stop there. He says, it's not just breaking a rule. What is at stake here is something deeper, bigger, sadder, uglier, and more heinous. It is a revolution, and it makes me God, and thus the God's God. In other words, it sets us up as God when we say, no, I don't want your ways, I want my way. Uh, R.C. Sproul says that sin is cosmic treason. It's treason against a perfectly pure, sovereign God. It's an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one whom we owe everything. He also says that the slightest sin is an act of defiance against cosmic authority. And this really got me. When we sin as the image bearers of God, we are saying to the whole creation, to all of nature under our dominion, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, that this is how God is. This is how your creator behaves. Look in this mirror. Look at us and you will see the character of the Almighty. We say to the world when we sin that God is covetous, God is ruthless, God is bitter, God is a murderer, a thief, a slanderer, an adulterer. God is all of these things that we are doing. And so we don't want to take sin lightly. Um, and we have to remember that every act of sin, no matter how small, is something that Jesus died for on the cross. So um, we went over this. We, we define sin a little bit. Um, we have the Ten Commandments, and that's kind of what we go to to say, 
This is what God says to do and not to do. Um, we're not going to go through all of those, but I think you know those. You know, don't kill, don't don't lie, don't steal, don't even covet. Um, and coveting shows that sin starts within the heart. Um, James four seventeen says that sin is more than just not doing what God says you shouldn't do. Uh, James says that if you know the right thing to do and you fail to do it, that is sin. Um, so there's sins that we commit as called sins of commission. We do sin. And then there's sins of omission where we fail to act the way that we should. And then the third uh, type of sin, I would say, is when we do what God says, but we do it in a way that he doesn't say to do it. And there's a story in Leviticus 10 about uh, two of Aaron's sons named Nadab and Abihu, who after God has, you know, he's given them all these, you know, prescriptions of how to, you know, do temple worship, how to do tabernacle worship. Uh, they go and they, they make this incense. And the priests were supposed to burn incense. But they made it in a way that God said not to do. And because of that, God had to strike them down. Uh, it says that, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. She had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified before all the people. I will be glorified, and Aaron held his peace. Uh, so, was it wrong to offer incense? No, God had commanded them to, to offer incense, but they offered it in a way that God had said not to, or he didn't say to. Uh, going deeper, because we think about sin on the surface. We think about it as things that we do. Uh, you know, Aiden gave us a good definition. It's anything we say, think, or do. That displeases God. And think starts within the heart. And this was like one of the core things of Jesus' teaching. One of the things that he had to correct people on the most because they had got the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the people of Israel had gotten into this whole, well, we've got to follow all these rules. That's how we're made holy. And it's not. You know, um, Jesus, uh, his teachings dealt with the heart of the matter. All right, you can do all these good things on the outside, but where's your heart? You know, as Nadab and Abihu showed, you can do a good thing, but do it wrongly. And, you know, that is sin. So Jesus in Mark 7, uh, 20 and 23 says, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they are what defile a person. That means that sin starts within the heart. Um, it's not just something that we do on the outside. It starts within the heart. Now... He also talked about how, uh, you know, two major sins, we think of them as major, right? We as humans give degrees to sin. But adultery and murder, uh, we think, okay, I've never killed anybody before. Uh, but have you ever hated someone within your heart? Jesus went further and said, 
that's committing murder. Uh, have you ever, you know, lusted after anyone? You've committed adultery within your heart. And so sin, sin starts with the outside. It's at the core of who we are as fallen humans. All right? This is obviously, like I said, we're dealing with who we are before God saves us. And we're still sinful afterwards, and we're going to get to that. Um, but that's what sin is. It displeases God. It's a separation from God. And it starts within our heart. So, why is there sin? Did God create sin? Uh, people look around the earth and they shake their fist at God and they're like, God, why did you create such a fallen world? Why did you create such an awful place to live in? Because there's just, you know, there's tragedy every, everywhere. You look on the news, you know, there's a shooting this past, this past week. You know, you see the hate in all the political speeches and, you know, you just... You just you just have to wonder, God, what's going on here? You know, what in the world is going on? Did you create the world this way? Well, um, before Adam sinned, before there was humans, there was Lucifer. And we get some of... The Bible doesn't have a, a clear, like, outline of this is, how, this is how everything went, right? We have to kind of piece it together. There's some interpretation that goes into it. And we, I think the core of where we get Lucifer's story is from Isaiah 14. And in that prophecy, uh, Isaiah 14, 12, the prophet goes, says, How you were fallen from heaven, O day star, O son of dawn. How you were cut down from the ground, who you laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will sit above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Now, a lot of people claim that as like a dual prophecy of the king of Babylon, I think it is, and Satan himself. And so you have Lucifer, and he has a choice. He says, I can continue serving God. Or I can set myself up as God. I don't have to be dependent on God. I can do what I want myself. As soon as that happened, he became corrupt. Um, and so that is how evil entered. Now, I can't answer all those questions about that. You know, there's... You know, there's all these thoughts that theologians wrestle with and, and how did that happen and how did it go? But, you know, as soon as someone says, I don't need God, God's got to cast them out of his presence. And so Satan has tried to destroy God's creation, God's holiness ever since. And that's where we get to the Garden of Eden. So, if you look at um, the Genesis account, you see, and I think that's something we're all familiar with. You know, the first day, second day, third day, all these things God created were good. And then he creates man. And if you want to turn to Genesis 1.26, God says... Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, 
And let them have dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So, uh, Adam and Eve have dominion over the whole earth. And he finishes and says, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. So once Adam and Eve were created, once Adam was created, God said that this is very good. Adam was the first image bearer. He showed God's attributes. Uh, he was a mirror reflecting who God was. And in his unfallen state, it was very good. God said creation was good until he made man and said, now it's very good. So, we have a perfect creation here in Genesis. And in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, God says that he, it says that God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, is eating fruit evil? Okay, well, no, it is not. All right. Well, anyways, I don't know about this. You can talk to me about that later. I've never heard of this religion you speak of. But, um, you know, God made the trees. He made them good, but he said you can't eat this one. And so when they're given this commandment, Adam has to, he has to make a choice. Am I going to trust God and say that he knows that he's good, that he knows what's best for me? Or do I want to go into it on my own and say what's best for me? Um, so man is the highest point of creation right now. All right? He's a little lower than the angels, but here on earth, he's the pinnacle. Man and woman are. Um, he had a responsibility to obey God, to trust God. And through that, he worshiped God um, by living in continual trust. However, when he disobeyed God, uh, that was his failure to trust God. He was saying, I know better than God. I'm going to step out of this trust in God, and I'm going to trust in my own devices. Romans 5.18 says that, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, and so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to the increase, the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Adam sinned. Adam and Eve sinned. They fell. And through that, God had to curse um, creation. It separated them from God. And it led to all the effects of sin that we see. And some people uh, that I've talked to in various outlets have brought up this, this great question is, why is it fair that Adam sinned and I have to pay for it, right? 
like if it was Adam's choice and Adam and Eve decided to disobey God, why do I have to pay for that? Well, Adam was our representative before God. And Aiden, you have your hand raised. Uh huh. Okay. Okay. So it could be like college debt. Uh, maybe your parents send you to college, and or they might pressure you to go to a college, and then you get into debt from that college, and they won't pay it. You've got to pay it. They kind of made that choice, and yeah, you know, there's things that affect us based on other people's choices, you know. I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee because my parents moved there. I didn't have a say in the matter. That's not evil, I love Chattanooga. Um, but, you know, this, this, um, this is something that, that is commonly called federal headship as Adam was the head of humanity and he made that choice. We all suffer for that choice. It'd be like if the President of the United States decided to go to war with somebody. I didn't have a say in that matter. Um, the President did, and uh, you know, I might have to suffer for that because all these people are now at war. You know, um, wasn't my choice. But as the head of the nation, as the head of America, he made that choice. That affects his nation. Adam, on a much larger scale, represented humans before God. And then, you know, you think about this. Well, Adam's choice was to obey or disobey God. And we have that choice every day. Um, You know, the Bible talks about, James says that, you know, we can't say that God is tempting us to sin. We can't say that sin comes from the outside. To us, it's our own temptations that carry us away. Uh, We go back to Jesus' teaching. Again, it comes from the inside. When Adam fell, all creation fell. Um, So, let's read that account. Uh, Satan comes to, to Eve in the garden. This is where it all starts. And he says, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, God had warned them that they would die. And death was on multiple levels, right? It wasn't just a physical death, it was a spiritual death. And the kind of death that Adam and Eve suffered immediately was a spiritual death. God had every right to kill them right then and there. They had become unholy. It was merciful. It was mercy that he postponed it. Um, it's kind of a side note. But the servant, verse 4, chapter 3, Genesis, verse 4. You can turn there, sorry. Genesis 3. But the servant said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that she was to look, it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. First of all, when they sinned against God, it separated them from God. 
They jumped out of God's trust and they trusted in themselves. They trusted in what the serpent said and it separated them from God. Um, Shame came into the world and they hid themselves because God would come to them and fellowship with them and there wasn't any separation before this happened. And how often, you know, if we really take a look at our lives, when we sin, we're shamed. We want to stay away. We, it puts a barrier between us and God. Continual sin does. And uh, they heard the sound, verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Their relationship has already been severed. Had they not disobeyed God, they could walk in fellowship. They had that freedom. But they severed that relationship. But the Lord God called to the man and said, And where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to, gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the snake deceived me and I ate. This has been the common pattern all throughout history. Man does not want to take responsibility of his sin. We try to find other people to blame. We try to blame the devil. But again, James says, Jesus says it comes from within us. um, In our fallen state. Verse 14, the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are are you above the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. And your belly shall go and of dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We're going to come back to that because that's so important. The woman to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So not only have humans separated themselves from God, they separated themselves from each other. All right? Adam and Eve are going to start fighting, right? They're not going to be living in harmony. This is an effect of sin. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Um, And then... Uh, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now, that's a really cool picture. I want to get to that. I also want to back up. The fall separated man from God, separated people from each other, and it separated nature and man. All right? I patrol the grounds at Grace, and you do not know how many weeds we have to pull up all the time, and Mr. Pollock gets on me. Well, he doesn't get on us, but, you know, he's like, oh, you know, there's weeds here, and it's like, look, we just sprayed these, like, last week, and it's just a constant battle. Um, 
nature's hostile to us. Sickness came um, and death came. And so because Adam and Eve fell and God had to curse the earth because it was now impure, there's all these bad things have come. So we do not live in the world as God created it, right? And the fallenness of this world can be a reminder that it is unnatural and push us towards searching and loving God more and hoping for the day that he will come back and restore all things. So um, God makes garments for them. And it's like, it's so cool because he has to, there always has to be a covering for sin. And it's shown right there in the garden. And I'm jumping ahead of myself, but it's too good to pass up. He, may, he promises that he's going to fix things. Not even a day has lapsed. And God says, I'm going to fix things. I'm going to set things straight um, by sending someone who's going to beat the serpent. And how merciful is God? How gracious is God that he's, even though man has sinned, even though he's rebelled, God's going to love and fix what man has messed up. Now, this is not the way it should be, the fall. The big effect of sin is the fall. And I want to give kind of an overview of, the, of just a lot of verses. If you want the list, I can give it to you later. We're just going to have to like run really fast through these because there is so much here. Um, but I want us to have a good biblically-based theology of what our sin is like before a holy God. Again, this is our fallen state before he rescues us. This is who a lot of us were. Hopefully all of us were. Um, But this is man's sinfulness. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in the trespasses of our sins. We live to the passions of our flesh. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Psalm 14 says that man is corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. All have turned aside. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Romans 1 talks about the wrath of God being against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Uh, Man's without excuse. They knew God. We can look at the world and we can say, wow, someone had to design this. You look at, like, I, I just, I don't understand how someone can say all this came from nothing. To me, it points to a creator. But man suppresses the truth. That's how sinful we are. We're like, no, I don't even want, I don't even want this. I don't even want to acknowledge that there's a God. Um, Romans 1 goes further and talks about that Man is so wicked that God gave them up to their debased mind. Um, and then he gives a list. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, mal- maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. So we try to figure out, like, what new wicked thing can I do today? Uh, you know, that's how bad humans are. Uh, disobedient to parents. That's in the list. It's kind of scary. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who do them. And if you look at the world outside of like regenerated Christians, those who are in the faith, yeah, there's a lot of approval to the evil of man. Uh, Micah 7, 2, 4 says that there is no one upright among mankind. The best of them, I never read this verse before. I'm, I'm sure I've read it at some point, but it never stuck out to me. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them is like a thorn hedge. How is that for a description? Um, Romans 6 says that we are slaves of sin before we come to know Christ. Um, 1 John 1.8 says that if we say we don't have sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Isaiah 53 says that we have all gone astray like lost sheep. Psalm 5.9, there's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ephesians 4 says that we were alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. All right, it's mankind. It's man's hardness of heart. John 8, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Um, Matthew 12, 34, 35, Jesus says, how can you speak good when you are evil? Like, how would you like it if, like, you were hanging out and Jesus came by and, you know, the Pharisees are doing their thing and then he just, like, calls everyone their evil? Like, good grief, you know? The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Psalm 51 says that we were conceived in iniquity. We were sinners before we even came out of the womb. Uh, Psalm 58 says that we're estranged from the womb and we go astray from birth speaking lies. Um, Even our goodness is tainted if we're not in Christ. Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. Um, Isaiah 64, there is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. So that is mankind's state apart from God. This is what's called the sickness unto death. We are all born with this sickness, and it isn't until Christ heals us that we can come back to life. We have new life in him. Um, Thomas Brooks, who was an old Puritan, he said this about continual sin, that the corruptions of the heart are more advantaged and confirmed, and the conscience of a man after falls or after sin is more enraged or the more benumbed. Sin, if it just keeps going, you can't pick up on it. You can't sense it. It benumbs you. Like I said, it keeps us apart from God. It separates us. Um, This biblical view of sin, what God calls us as humans without him, apart from him, is in total contrast to what modern man says. When the Enlightenment came, that was around like 1700s, you know, we had Thomas Jefferson and all these guys and, you know, they're deists. And they came up with this 
this uh, theory of man called the tabula rasa theory. All right, that basically says we're a clean slate, right? Is that how the Bible paints us? Are we born a clean slate? Oh, we're born sick. We're born in wickedness. And that's where humanism, which is a very prevailing worldview, comes from. And saying that man is basically good. Now, mankind does a lot of good things. All right. Uh, I think that there's that there are a lot of great achievements that man has accomplished. And you can look at a lot of people who are not in Christ and they do good things. Right. Charities, um, helping the poor, all these things. They're great works. They're image bearers. Right. They bear God's image. It's just a fallen, broken, incomplete image. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his uh, Space Trilogy, uses... It's, it's a great book series. But he uses this... Uh, fallen man comes in contact with unfallen creation. And the unfallen creation, the only way they can really describe fallen creation is bent. They have a bent towards evil. It's like what Rebecca was saying last night in our panel, um, even, even when we're made new, even when our hearts of stone are turned into a seed, we still have that bent, that want to sin. That's just how mankind goes. You know, if you break a window playing baseball, I don't know why that's like the common illustration, but if you break a window playing baseball, more than likely you're going to want to run and hide and like point the finger at people. You're not going to want to own up to what you did. You might. You might be an exception, but it's just easier to try to get away from things. Um, I work at a daycare. I work at Grace's Daycare, and there's a child in my class who is just, like, so defiant. And this poor kid is, like, only three years old, and you're like, man, there's wickedness in the heart of a child. Uh, and then he, like, started inventing lies, like, on the spot. Like, I told him, get off the table. My mom said I could get on the table. And then it's like... My mom said I could um, go, up, go the wrong way up the slide. And then he went so far as to say, my mom said I could do whatever I want. I was like, I don't think so. <laughs> Mama didn't say. Uh, you know, that's just, that's just who we are. We're naturally bent that way before God. So what does this mean? What does the fall mean? What does it mean for God and sin? Well, because of his holiness... He has to judge sin, all right? And he immediately judged Adam and Eve, but he delayed part of that judgment. He gave mercy. And one of my favorite verses, and this has come up so many times over the past year, and it's, it's funny because, like, it, it's a common story in Exodus, um, but I never, I never really thought about it like this. And I, I call it kind of like God's calling card, like, you know, like if you have a way that you're going to introduce yourself, if there's a way God's going to introduce himself, this is how he introduces himself because it's repeated several times, like in the Psalms. And I think in Isaiah, he says the wording's a lot the same. In Exodus 34, 6, uh, it says, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God has to punish sin. But God also says that he's not willing that any should perish. He wants to forgive sin. And he has done that. Um, And I'm not going to step too much into Grant's territory on that because that's the next talk. But if we needed just one more example of like how sinful man is, all we have to do is look at the Bible in the Old Testament. And it's just one failure after the other. Adam and Eve fail. Cain kills Abel. Uh, mankind's so wicked that God has to flood the earth and spare Noah because he's promised that he's going to make things right. God's not going to go back on his promise. Um, but he has to judge sin, and that's how sinful things had gotten. Um, all the heroes of the faith, and we're going to talk about this tonight, they had failings. We look to them, we say they're great, they fail. The nation failed. They get out of Egypt. God's giving the Ten Commandments to Moses right then and there. And as he's doing that, they're already trying to seek after other gods. Uh, they get to the land and they fail to take possession of the land. All right. Um, the judges was a time when every man did what was right in their own eyes. And they finally get a king, but they want a king on their own accord, not God's accord. And it's just one thing after another, after another. They finally get a king and he fails because he tries, you know, he, he can't, he disobeys God. He doesn't offer the right sacrifices, right? That's another one of those examples of doing good, but in the wrong way. God says, don't touch these people. Wait for Samuel to get here. He doesn't wait for Samuel. Um, even David is a failure. Uh, you know, he, he, there's several big ones in his book, you know. He commits adultery and kills all in the same. He counts Israel's troops, you know, and, you know, God says don't do that, but he does it anyways. And, uh, you know, the whole exile period, you know, wickedness just abounds and they don't listen to the prophets. And then you get to Jesus' time and even the state of, the, um, of Israel's religion, of the Jewish religion, is marked in total contrast. It's not marked by faith in God, but faith in what I can do. So, what can be done about sin? And this is where Grant's going to help us out. But, remember that God always has a plan. And if you ever want to know, I think one of the greatest examples of how God views sin and how it breaks his heart is the story of Jesus and Lazarus. Because here's Jesus on earth, His friend Lazarus is sick and he dies. And that's where Jesus says, this is not a sickness unto death. It's the first death. It's the physical death. And Jesus says, uh, it says in the Bible that Jesus saw her weeping, one of uh, Mary, Lazarus' sisters, and Jews who had come with her also weeping. And he was deeply moved or indignant. Jesus saw the pain and the sadness that sin brought, the death that sin brought, and he was troubled. It made Jesus cry. It broke his heart. But he didn't just, he did something about it. He, he brought Lazarus back, and he did it so that others would see and believe the glory of God. And that's who we have as a Savior. That's what God's plan was from the beginning of time.
God says, I'm going to rescue humanity even though they're going to fall. And so um, we have before us the two Adams, the disobedient Adam and the obedient Adam, who is Jesus Christ. And just as the old Adam disobeyed in the garden, Jesus obeyed in the garden of Gethsemane. He prayed and get this, guys. This is just a side note. If you've ever prayed and had a prayer not answered the way that you pray, Jesus knows what that feels like. Jesus knows our pain. Jesus said, take this cup from me if you will. Did God take the cup from Jesus? No. So have you had a prayer that hasn't been answered the way you want it? Jesus has experienced that. Jesus has entered into all of our sufferings. Um, He obeyed in the garden. Uh, Just as Adam brought death from the, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Jesus brought life on the tree that is the cross. And how glorious is that? That Jesus, as the obedient Adam, as a representative of a righteous priest and humanity as it should have been, comes before God and offers himself as a sacrifice so that we can have um, a relationship with God and that we can be healed from the sickness that brings death. And so I hope that this has helped you understand who we were, hopefully, and what our sin is and how much and how deep Christ's love for us much and how deep God's love for us uh, is that he wants to do something about that. He has done something about it. And like I said, don't want to take too much from Grant, but that will be our next talk. So thanks.